0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. On his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul covered a lot of territory in what is today Turkey, and then he sailed across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia to visit uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then he worked his way down the coast to Athens and then Corinth before heading back to Jerusalem and to Antioch, which is where he started. His last stop in southern Greece had been in Corinth. He stayed there for a year and a half, founding a church. And a couple of years later, he received troubling reports of some very serious and a whole lot of problems. So while in Ephesus on his next missionary journey, his third missionary journey, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. A couple of weeks ago in the introduction and overview of this letter, we saw just how much turmoil there was in the church there. To address all of this, a letter was quite challenging for Paul, as it would be for anybody, if you think about it. Yet, Christ's calling of him as his last apostle enabled and empowered Paul to write this God-breathed letter that we have before us. That's a nice way of saying, take this seriously. You've got to listen You've got to open your hearts and your ears. We need what Paul writes here. Very, very much. Knowing the problems that Paul has to address here makes the beginning of this letter nothing short of remarkable. Why? Because his greeting to these people and then his prayer of thanksgiving for them, which is where we're going to be mainly today in verses four through nine. His greeting and his prayer of thanksgiving to God for them. Did you catch that? That prayer gives no hint whatsoever that the body of the rest of this letter will directly address how they're sinful. And immoral behaviors, their factious loyalties, and their self centered arrogance and immaturity have dragged the name of Christ through the mud in the eyes of the world that these people live in. Paul is going to hold up before them in this letter what Christ's church is and what it should look like, emphasizing that the bride of Christ, its purpose is to manifest the character of the living God to the world, to display God's own reflection to and in the worldly, materialistic, what we could say is upwardly mobile, diverse, and immoral city. There's a lot of other ways we could describe that, but that pretty much sums it up. So, In order to do that, several things must be made crystal clear in this letter. Both their ongoing sins and the toleration of those sins have to be called out and addressed. There is no beating around the bush in this letter. And these people must see and understand that their identity has been changed in Christ. Which means that their attitudes and behaviors must then follow suit and reflect Christ in this new identity. I don't know whether you realize that or not, but that's your problem and that's my problem. That's our basic problem. So what we're getting to here is our basic problem and how God addresses it. Another way to say that is they must be in their day-to-day lives what their identity already is in Christ. That's our issue right there. That's our struggle. They must pursue, they must manifest, they must then display and reflect holiness. Why? Why? because Christ is holy. I don't know whether you remember this verse when we went through Hebrews. It sounds like just, well, I can barely remember myself. But Hebrews 12, 14 puts it this way. This should shock you. Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I feel like pausing longer because a lot of us have some issues with that statement. What is said there in Hebrews combines both our standing and position in Christ with the evidence of it in our day-to-day struggle. In other words, this is serious. If you truly belong to Christ... If you genuinely belong to him, your new nature and identity will be revealed in your resolve to live a holy life. No one is exempt from this. Paul gets all this across by highlighting in this letter three main and necessary characteristics that the church must display. And you realize when we say the church, it's talking about the people in the church. More as corporately together than as individuals, but both are true. And what are those? Do you remember them yet? Holiness, unity, and love must be the three main characteristics that we reflect as a body. And the reason the, must, the church must reflect these three foundational characteristics to the world that we live in is because God is holy, God is one, and God is loving. The city of Corinth sees the people in this church as those who say they now believe in and serve Christ. True? Yes. They know these people who now claim to be followers of Christ. They know these people. If they can't see any difference between now and what the church people were before, then what does that say about the God that they say they believe in? That's the real underlying issue, is it not? If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 4 through 9. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way You were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Okay, everybody in here knows what this church is up to. Is that how you'd start a letter to them? This is shocking at first glance. A lot of missionaries, pastors, elders, fellow believers in Christ would say, especially if they were across the Aegean Sea in Ephesus and they heard all this, well, just their history. Why even bother? They're so far gone, why should we even try to talk to them? Is that what Paul does? So, what is he doing? He is thanking God for these people whose attitudes and behavior are deeply disturbing. He doesn't start off, hey, I want to write to you guys. I love you so much. We all care about you. We're so thankful for you. He doesn't start like that. He says, I give thanks to my God for you. Do you see the difference? If you want to really bring this home, think about something that you are struggling with big time right now. And there's a lot of you that are. Goes in circles. We all get it. Might be a person, might be a relationship. Might be family, might be friends, might be your job, might be your place in life, might be anything. Can you give thanks to your God for, and then fill in the blank? You see where he's going here? This is so important. And if you can't do that right now, If you can't thank God for whatever you're going through, imagine how Paul felt thanking God for a church that he had founded. And he was there for a year and a half, pouring his life into these people every single day. And then he gets a letter and says, Man, this person's doing this. These guys are doing this. This thing's going on. They're crazy at the Lord's Supper. What happened? What can I do about this? Well, he thanks God for him. to start off. That is so, just not us. It's not what we would normally think about doing first. And yet, this is the mark of... Of somebody who does know and love the Lord because it's the first thing he does. The very first thing he does. You see, his confidence is in God's work in that person that's driving you crazy, in that relationship that you think is on the cliff, in that work situation that you can't figure out how in the world. You're supposed to even get up and get there in the morning. etc, etc, etc. Whatever you're not trusting God for, He's the only one you can trust. And that's why we need to be encouraging one another in every single day. He's thanking God for these people whose attitudes and behavior are deeply disturbing. But because he can and does thank God for them, as hard as I hope you get that that is to do, he can and he does encourage them. This is one of the most encouraging paragraphs in the whole Bible. In other words, I'm praying that not only I will be encouraged, but I'm praying that you will be encouraged, especially if I know what you are going through, which may be more than some of you realize. He'd already identified them as sanctified, which should have blown you away last week. Sanctified saints in verse 2. Remember that this was the truth about God bestowing on them their identity in Christ. This identity was externally given to them by God in contrast to the self-focused, all-consuming work of trying to build your own identity and purpose around something. I don't like who I am. I think I'm going to portray myself this way on social media. I... Changing my identity, so when I meet somebody new, I'm not going to tell them this part. I'll just let them know this part. Do you realize that's how most people spend most of their time in our day now? And usually it's around what the society and the culture is. So put let's go back to Corinth. What the society and culture of Corinth believed was of value and importance. God's gracious call gave these people their identity that they received in Christ. Because it was God who called them, Paul doesn't try to protect and figure out why God would call people like this to Christ. You ever taken on that responsibility? What is that person doing here? If you're thinking that, that reveals something about how far off you are in the way you think. It's humbling. Thank goodness the word of God humbles us to get us back. And why doesn't Paul try to figure out why? Why not? Because Paul shockingly found out many years before, that Christ had called him. And he had no illusions about the state of his own rebellion and rebellious and evil heart. He describes himself as the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul already knew that all things are possible with God. He'd seen God meet him on the road to Damascus where he was going to arrest some more followers of Christ, blinded him with a light, and a voice came out. It was Christ saying, Why are you persecuting me? What? A lot of us have more gradual and not as exciting conversions. He carried this with him. He had no illusions In fact, another place, he lists all the reasons why he could go, I'm the most educated here. I'm smarter than all you guys. I've got the whole Old Testament memorized. God spoke to me in person. The risen Christ. I'm going to lay it on you. And do you realize that all that is shoved down on the ground where his face is? In humility and worship? This is heavy stuff. It really is. He knew that he was a prime example of being a recipient of God's grace. What we should be asking ourselves is, do we realize that? Do I realize that? Do you realize that? Last question, do we realize that? And notice that he can even say that he gives thanks for them. and This is like adding firewood on an already blazing forest fire. What does he say? He gives thanks for them always. What? Always? Even when so-and-so did this? Even when the church is dragging Christ's name through the mud? Even when? Always. Can you give thanks for your wife? Always. For your husband? Always. For that irritating co worker? Always. For people in here? Always. Because God's bigger than all of it. Can we? Okay, we could just stop right there, and that's enough for today, right? It's snowy, you want to get home, turn on the fire yourself? We're just getting started. He knew the Lord so well and trusted him so much that he could thank God for these people who are tolerating all sorts of sin and causing all sorts of pain and misery for so many others. Do you and I pray this way about people in this church whom we know may be visibly struggling and navigating their professed faith and so rub us the wrong way and stretch us completely out of our comfort zones? Is our first thought that God? it was God who called them to himself and put them in the fellowship of my church? Have you got that? Most of us go, uh, I sure want to, but man, I've got this problem. Well, first you've got to recognize it before you can deal with it. You ever thought about that the people that may irritate or do stuff or all that stuff around you, what it does is it make you come to terms with your own sin? You deserved condemnation. Christ. Loved you so much that he died on the cross for you. Don't worry about your next door person. we got to get this first. See, that's the identity question that he's trying to get across with these people. Maybe we can pray like that some of the time or even most of the time, but you notice that always word Paul adds in there. Okay, turn it around. You get this letter. You start reading it. You have a feeling you know what's coming. This is not a short letter. Right? So how do these people who know, because if they truly are his, they have the Holy Spirit living within their hearts, and they know that they've been convicted. You know, he does that. That's his work. He reveals to us how much we're off that nagging Little voice in there that we call nagging is our lifeline back into the word of God and his power and truth. We know that. And they hear this. Some of them are going to get it. They're going to go, oh, man, we are such a mess. I am such a mess. And he's thanking God always for me. That right there will humble some. Others it's going to take some direct confrontation and a lot of time because some of us are really hard-headed. Incredible start, isn't it? So this does this question cause us to realize how much how much we have to grow? in our dependence upon the Lord who sovereignly and providentially formed us into his local church? Does it? Yeah, because see, we never get there. We won't get there until we're there. So we've always got to be aware of this. Do we need to confess and repent of our desire or for some of us, it's an ultimatum to have the right to micromanage who God even places in our church. The real rub here is that the Corinthian church was so extreme in its excesses that it's almost hard to believe that Paul could give God thanks for these people always. That's the bottom line here, isn't it? But he did. And we need to understand and agree with why he could. We need to aspire to seeing God's people as belonging to Christ. And therefore submitting our hearts to Christ's purposes, even if we don't see the whole picture. And folks, we're never going to get the whole picture. But we have what we need to know right here in this word. And really, from what we've just said now in this introduction, is enough. It's enough to allow God to change our hearts or to warn us or to get that warning flag up that's thinking, man, you sure are thinking wrongly about that person. You sure are thinking wrongly about this or that. You know what you need to do. Why don't you just do it? Trust me. So Paul's opening prayer of thanks to God for the people he has to write this tough letter to should also greatly humble us as we consider areas of our own hearts that God desires to work in. God knows how to work in each one of us to bring us to know him better and to glorify him more. And most of the time, It's because he graciously reveals the sinful attitudes that we're blind to by opening our eyes to our own sinful responses to all these day-to-day life situations. Isn't that how he works with you? He opens your eyes to your sinful responses. Because as soon as you start yelling about her or him or them or whatever you're doing, what's the first thing the Holy Spirit it in your heart. What are you doing? What about your attitude right now? You can't say anything. You need to get this straight with me and them first. So don't miss Paul's point. He can give thanks to God for them always because of the grace of God that was given to them In Christ Jesus. Hey, think about that. You know the the parent that fails in their parental duties by saying, I can't talk to my kid about that because I did that. I know lots of people in that category. So what happens? It just goes generation to generation. Nobody ever deals with it. Because they don't feel like they can say anything because they did it or they thought it or they failed there. Is that what Paul's doing? Now, see, he's going the next level up. He can give thanks to God for them always because of the grace of God that was given to them, to that person in Christ. That's heavy. You get that? You look at your spouse different on the way home from church today. You look at your kids different. You think about your friends and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ different. This is life changing because it's so foundational for every one of us the encouragement that Paul gives them is that the question about who they really were, their identity, had already been settled. If you got a driver's license, you took the less you took the test once, but when you get older, they're start, they're starting to wise up a little bit and make you maybe go back. Why? You have to ever have to go back and get your identity done all over again? In Christ? Do you? You're in him. Nothing can take you from His hands. Just start thinking of all the truth promises in there. That's who you are, whether you're acting like it or not. So to deny that is to deny what God's done. And yet in His patience and grace, He gives us this time, most of the time, to be convicted of this, And finally agree with it. Why am I fighting? Why am I looking forward to this time I can sin? Why am I holding on to this jealousy? Why am I so ticked off all the time and angry? Well, the bottom line is, because you want to hold on to it for some reason, power, control, it gives you a kick, whatever it may be, more than you want to believe who God has made you, that you're in Christ. He's changed you from the inside out. So he's giving you opportunities now to see how that looks as you strive for that. And his spirit and his power does the work on the inside. So what have we seen? We've seen that in Christ they've already been set apart by God as his holy ones. This identity came from God's grace that was bestowed on them in Christ. Remember, for those of you in Sunday school, Christ is the grace, his person at work. In other words, as Paul writes this, he can truthfully remind them that they'd already received God's ultimate word of approval and acceptance in the context of a new purpose in life to grow in grace and manifest God's character his holiness his unity and his love to the world they live in together with the other saints in the Corinthian church and he's gonna pound that in and explain it over and over and over again with each problem that comes up in this letter so he goes on I know you were wondering Now in verses 5 and 6, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So now Paul encourages them even more by showing how well God has equipped them to live out their new identity. Not only has he given them a new identity, he equips us to live that out. God answers the Christian's identity question: What's that? Who am I? Our care group went through the Moses in the burning bush, and you know that was the big question. He was asking, well, who am I when God called him to do that incredible job for him? This is what we do. We ask this. He's given us the identity of belonging to Christ, being set apart in Christ for the purpose of reflecting God's character to the world along with other believers, especially in and through a local church. But God also answers what's usually the next question, was what am I supposed to do, and how do I do it? You don't usually ask that until you've got the first one answered. Because if you ask the second one first, what you're doing is, well, how can I get brownie points so I can have the best mansion in heaven? Or how can I get to the point where I want it? I won't experience any heartache in life or any hard thing. That's backwards. First is your identity in Christ, and then you find out how God has equipped them. And so Paul's thanking God for this, and he's praying about this right here. Notice that in verse 5, Paul tells the Corinthians how they are so well-equipped to live out their identity. God equips us with gifts and skills and abilities as well as spiritual gifts especially suited to our lives and roles in the church listen to what he says here in every way you were enriched in him the in every way is qualified by the in him Do you understand what that means This means that we have everything we need in Christ, not everything we want. And that's huge. He knows what we really need. Many times it's not what I would want. In every way you were enriched in him. What about the in all speech and all knowledge? Well, that works the same way. We have all the speech and all the knowledge necessary to accomplish all that God wants us to do. And you're going, well, 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 well. How many of us have said, I can't get up in front of a class and say anything? Now, we all know some people who can't shut up when they get up in But most of us are on the other category, true? Moses said it. God, I I can't. We've got to know that we have all the speech and all the knowledge necessary to accomplish all that God wants us to do. And sometimes he stretches us. I've told you guys this before. I sat in the back of every class I had in high school. And I know, I knew who to say, you answer the question. <laughs> you talk. You give an impromptu speech in English about something you know nothing about just because you can chatter for 25 minutes about everything out of the world and use vocabulary that is above the teacher's ability. Go ahead, say it, say it. Why? Because we all knew that if they talked, we wouldn't have to. And then God does something in your life where he puts you in front of people. More people than you ever dreamed of being in front of. And you had to do weird, crazy things. And I look back at those times and I think, oh man, look what he had to do to even make me not throw up and get violently sick. And just thinking about it. (laughs) <laughs> up in front of anything he does this he knows what he's called us to do and he will equip you to do what's necessary so that he uses you the way he made you to, what he made you to do I don't know about you but I think that's very encouraging it's not something to be scared about why? Can you trust the God who made you? Does anybody know you better than Him? He's the one that gave me red hair and made it fall out when I was 50 something. He's the one that gave you gifts and abilities that nobody else has. He's the one that made you the way you were. You didn't pick all this out, you didn't sign a form. I want to be born here with these parents in this place and I want to have these gifts and abilities. That's what people are now trying to do after the fact. It doesn't work. It's incredibly, incredibly encouraging to know that God who created a world that we can't still figure out. The intricacy. That he could make this many individual people be a part of his body and call us in different ways to accomplish different things, but do it all together And loving one another's gifts and the way they're different. And you realize that this book deals with this a lot later on. So we can go on. This is... This is not about eloquence or personality or vocabulary. This is focusing on God-given ability and capability to speak for Christ in whatever situation or circumstance of life he has placed you in. Who enables us to speak for Christ? And in whose power do we do so? You can't answer that question, we need to start over. The Holy Spirit who indwells you. I hope we realize that this one era, this one verse destroys every objection that we can come up with about not being able to witness or testify about Christ. It destroys it. Because that's one thing all of us are called to do. It may look different with every one of us. But every one of us says something about Christ by the way we live and the way we talk. Yes, we should be eager to hone or sharpen our speech about the Word and our knowledge of the Word. But that motivation could, should come from a heart that is more than willing to bear witness to the one who saved us. In verse 6, Paul points to the Corinthians' own experience of being brought to faith by God's grace through the power of the gospel as spoken and taught by Paul and the others who were with him. It's like he's saying, Look, Corinthians... Your own faith is confirmation that God works this way through other people who brought you his word. You see that? Look, that's how you came to the Lord. You don't think those guys were out in Yahya Yah land for a while and didn't know how to do what? And look what I was doing. I was going after Christians to have them killed. God's using me? You don't think that's a privilege? I shouldn't have that privilege. But I get to bear testimony of the one who met me and saved me. And I was on my knees. Praise his holy name. So, do you have to fear going to work? Do you have to fear your neighbor? Do you have to fear that relative that strikes that cord and pushes your buttons? No. You don't. Paul finishes this paragraph by pointing out, how God's bestowal of their new identity, along with His equipping them to live out their identity. That's kind of the two words today. He's given you an identity, He has equipped you to live it out. This points them in a certain direction with a certain result. So look at verses seven and nine through nine. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Do you believe that? Or do you want the gifts that somebody else has? Or do you even know what yours is? You know, you can't figure out what your gift is if you're isolated and you're not operating in the body of Christ. Because then people notice. They go, you know, I was really blessed by what you did. Or, man, when I came to your house, I just felt like, Instead of like this. You made me feel at home. What's that called? Hospitality? You you can go through the gifts. You don't need to do this. You don't need to take an exam or a test that rates you by this many points. This is what your gift is. Usually it's confirmed in the body of Christ by how you bless other people and encourage them in their walk. And I look around this room and I see tons of different gifts employed in different ways by the way God made each of you. It's beautiful. There is nothing more beautiful than that. So these last three verses change the perspective here. So that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, like that word, wait. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless or blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? And God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is an incredible three verses. So, where our perspective is changed here. Instead of looking back at what God has done, now what is is he doing? He's looking forward to the now and the future, not back. To the now and the future. Showing what God has done benefits the Corinthians now and into the future, even to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this answers the question, where am I going what does my future hold? Will it be worth it? So you see in this first part, Paul's answer the question of, who am I? and what am I supposed to be doing? And then, where am I going? Next time you go on a trip and you've got little kids, I expect you to link this with that question. Are we there yet? In the Christian life? No, we're not. We're going. When are you going to get there? Well, it might be a really long time, but on this trip it might not be that long. You can do spiritual truth in any context if you're wired into what God's Word says here. Verse 7, so that you're not holding or not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus. This is not requir- you know, referring to the quantity of how many spiritual gifts you have. It's... The idea that Paul's already spoken about, that God's gift of of His grace, those gifts are more than able to counteract the sins and the failures so prevalent in this Corinthian congregation. He knows that. And we see here again that Paul's confidence is in God keeping them as they wait for the Lord's return. Verse 8. You will sus- he will sustain you to the end, guiltless or blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you can't accept your identity, you're not going to accept this either. This is uh, one of those places where the English words help us get the importance and the sense of wonder about what Paul is not just saying or wishing, but what's promised. God will sustain you. That's the English Standard Version. Confirm you. That's the New American Standard and King Jimmy. He will strengthen you. Christian Standard Bible. He will keep strong. NIV. Get all that? They're all good. Put them all together. He will sustain you. Confirm you, strengthen you, and keep you strong enough to be presented guiltless and blameless. Why? Because you're in Christ. So he's laid a foundation here. This means to lay a foundation. This sustain, confirm, strengthen word. So Paul is assuring them that in the day of our Lord, God will continue to hold them to be guiltless and blameless, as indeed they now already are in Christ. It's no small matter that it's only by God's power and strength that Christians will certainly be blameless when the day of the Lord comes. Notice that Paul is not trying to identify, uh, or he's not trying tying their identity or their level of equipping or their giftedness to their performance here. You notice that? This is really important to notice. He's encouraging them by saying something radical. Regardless of what you bring to the table, God finds you incredibly valuable. And on top of that, he's going to ensure that you are sustained and carried through to a joy-filled, eternal life with him in the future. There is no praise here for a job well done, which is probably what we would want to hear first. That's not the kind of encouragement Paul gives here. Why? Well, just think of all the bad behavior they're doing. He's not going there yet. All that hasn't even been mentioned yet. But notice in verse 10 how it starts off. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. Here he goes. That's next week. But not yet. He's still tying up this foundation. This fact is really brought home in verse 9. And God is faithful by Him you were called into the fellowship of His Son. God is faithful. Who's not being faithful? These people. God effectively called you into the fellowship of Christ. You didn't move yourself toward that. I hope You're seeing the humility and the trust that's necessary. So the tension builds. Paul's ready to appeal to them after this paragraph to live in a manner that correctly reflects who their Savior is. We're there. So if you seriously take the calling that you have in Christ to live wisely in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God, you, again, have got to know five things, and they're all here. Who you really are, first, you've got to know your identity as being a child of God, set apart to reflect God's character of holiness, unity, and love to the world. You've got to know, secondly, what will last. Is it, where's that in here? You're standing before God in the verses we just read because he bestowed his grace on you. You've got to know who to depend on. the only one who could and willingly did pay the price of your sin, you've got to know who lived this way to make all this possible. Christ. His record is your record. And you've got to know how the story will end. Our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless or blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. I was trying to imagine how these people felt right here. I couldn't get it. Maybe you can help this week. But we did recite something in a catechism this morning. See if this makes any more sense now. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope, for our happiness, significance, that's a big word in our culture, and security. Where is your hope? What idols do you have that took Christ out of being your hope? Your happiness, your significance, and your security. I loved that this morning. God subdued me. Some of us need to be a little more subdued that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an incredibly encouraging passage, letting us know who we are and how you've equipped us to live out who we are. We thank you that the rest of the letter Paul will, will weave this grace and remembrance of your standing and position through all the problems and explain them in ways that will continue to encourage us, but also hold us to account for dealing with them. We ask for your grace as we continue. Help us just deal with this today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Take Rob's chapter, Romans 11 today. From him, for from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Have a good afternoon wherever you're huddled up.